0: This episode is sponsored by me, Andy Hill, the host of this show. If you're looking for someone to support you on your family, wealth, and happiness journey, I'm taking on a select number of coaching clients this year. To work with me one-on-one for your family finances, go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash coaching to learn more.
1: I have yet to see somebody at the divorce court when they got their judgment entered. People are usually at least relieved, if not downright happy that it's done and they're moving on to the next chapter. They may not be feeling that way in the beginning, especially if they're the person that sort of didn't want the divorce or wasn't the first one. But by the end of the process, most people have come to acceptance. They realize if this person doesn't love me, I really don't want to be with them either.
0: This show is dedicated to helping you strengthen your family tree and live financially free. Welcome to the Marriage, Kids, and Money podcast, everybody. This is Andy Hill, and today we're talking about how to divorce without losing your kids' money and mind. For the past five years on this podcast, we've discussed ways to strengthen your marriage and your family tree. But there is still a stark reality that nearly half of all marriages in the U.S. end in divorce. So if you are contemplating divorce or are already in one, this episode is for you. To guide us through this difficult process and get the divorce process done, I've invited Rayford Palmer on the show today. Rayford is a family law attorney and managing shareholder of Chicagoland-based STG Divorce Law, where he focuses on complex divorce cases, especially those involving high net worth individuals. His work includes litigation, collaborative divorce, mediation, as well as premarital and postmarital agreements. Recently, he wrote a book called I Just Want This Done, How Smart, Successful People Get Divorced Without Losing Their Kids, Money, and Minds. Welcome to the show, Rayford. Thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you talking about this important conversation. You've worked with many clients over the years. Why do you believe divorce is a high factor in our country? Well,
1: I guess the good news is the trend is is downward. The divorces are trending downward demographically. But why it's a high factor in our country? I think that one of the short answers is people are living much, much longer. This started with the the baby boom was really the big divorcing generation. And when you read the studies that have been done on this, it ties a lot back to people's expectations of life, their lifestyles, and living so much longer that, you know, at one time if you live to 62, that was an achievement. And that meant you'd be married, you know, maybe 40 years at at most. People are now living well into their 80s and 90s, and they're healthy at those ages. And it is drastically changing the way people live their lives. And also, I think there's some degree of our prosperity in this country has raised people's expectations for what their life should be like. We've gone sort of at the top of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, food, shelter, clothing, emotional support. And then you go so high off the top, you start searching for other things. And I think there's something to be said for that too. When you were married to somebody for survival, and really marriage was built out of a contractual relationship required to run a family. Well, between changes in our political and social structure with governments financing people that don't have spouses. you know, they, they help support them financially. Our prosperity has, I think, to some extent, helped generate this.
0: So you talk about the Maslow's hierarchy. What are some of those things that are outside of the food, shelter, clothing? I mean, what are the things that we are now expecting in marriages that you're then seeing, wow, well, I, I'm not getting that, so I'm out?
1: Well, that's a great question, Andy. It's like the notion of a romantic marriage is actually a very new one. When you go back only a couple hundred years, marriages were really strictly business arrangements. The notion of romantic marriage is is almost a 1900s or a 20th century phenomenon. People think arranged marriages are very strange nowadays, and we deal with some of those with other cultures typically. It's not that unusual, and it wasn't that long ago in our culture, that that was very common. We've had a drastic change in our culture within a handful of generations
0: my wife's family comes from Iraq and it was a pretty common thing for uh, their culture. And a lot of her aunts had arranged marriages. And so it's something that I'm I'm familiar with and it's not just two generations away. But as we've moved into this, I guess, new world, this new world of marriages that you know all about, the world of prenups and postnups are things to consider. Is that something that you recommend for marriages or people who are considering getting married nowadays?
1: Absolutely. I I talk about it all the time in social media. I, I urge people to certainly consider prenup and get advice about one. And certainly for people in a second marriage or third marriage, that it's critical. If the two of you are married, if you're newly married and it's your first marriage, I still think it's important because it's, it's inexpensive. It is a way to control the landing in a divorce so that it's not only about deciding that your property is yours, mine is mine, and determining what is marital or community property and and having rules to govern that, which will assist in a divorce process and make it easier. There are also a lot of other factors and variables you can nail down and confirm in a prenup that benefit both people that will make a, a divorce process much more efficient.
0: It sounds like one of those things that just makes such logical sense. I kinda I liken it to term life insurance, something like, Yeah, you know what, we're gonna die. Or with divorce, less than half of this might not go the way we want it to. So planning ahead makes a lot of sense. I guess it's just the emotional side that gets in the way. Is that right?
1: Absolutely. And it's the same thing as an estate plan. Lawyers have a hard time talking about estate plans with people because nobody likes to think about dying. So Part of the sales challenge with estate plans, especially with younger people, is nobody wants to talk about what happens when they die. And as a result, a lot of folks are left without an estate plan upon their death. And similarly, a prenup is the same kind of thing. It's sort of, like you said, common sense legal protection, very affordable. In fact, there's some services coming out that pretty much automate the process. And it's only going to get less expensive, just the trend line with legal services in general. So more than ever, it's a smart move. And also the other side effect, the beneficial side effect of a prenup is having the conversation about the issues. And several months before the marriage, preferably a year before the marriage, a couple considering marriage should have those conversations about money, children, where do we want to live? The divorce conversation drives the marriage conversation which, you know, nobody wants to talk about getting divorced. Nobody gets on, on their wedding day and says, gee, I hope I get divorced someday, <laughs> you know? Uh, and when I was married the first time, I was the happiest guy in the world. I was married for 24 years. And I was, it, it was a great marriage in many, many, many respects. So I certainly didn't wish that I'd get divorced on my wedding day. I was the happiest guy in the world. So, but having those conversations about what your expectations are, about what your goals are, A lot of people, I think, get caught up in the romantic stuff, which is understandable, and don't want to talk about the nuts and bolts.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. I think there's a reason that I've been doing this show for five years, over 300 episodes, and I've never spoken to anybody about divorce or the process of it. So I think that maybe I have a little bit of romanticized version of marriage in my brain. And, you know, I get it. I'm glad we're having the conversation today. So let's talk to the folks that are listening right now that maybe clicked on this episode and said... I want to get a divorce. I'm ready. We've done the counseling. We've done the steps, Andy, that you've been talking about for the past five years. We've tried to connect. It's just not working. I need to get a divorce. What are the first steps that they need to take?
1: And I guess one side note, I'm a big believer in marriage. I got remarried. So I'm a fan. Okay. So let's get that out I think out of that's
0: important to say too, because I think when we talk about divorce, you're like, oh, he's the divorce guy. It's like, no, no, no. I, I'm just helping people, man. I've got divorced and then I got remarried. So absolutely. Yeah. I
1: mean, I tell people, we're the plumber. You know, if you have something broken, we'll help you fix it and get through to the next thing. And so it's with compassion and and as peacefully as possible. So the first thing to get to your question, what's the first thing to do? Educate yourself and educate yourself wisely because there's a lot of misinformation or old information out on the internet. So one of the blessings, of course, as you know, and you've talked about is the wide variety of sources of information out there And, and books, websites, podcasts like your show. There is a host of information out there, some of it excellent, some of it outdated, some of it completely incorrect. So finding good sources of, of information, absorbing as much as you can and educating yourself, just like anything else, buying a car, buying a house, getting married. If you're going to get divorced, understand the process, especially in your jurisdiction, You know what goes on in your state. Understand what reasonable expectations are, and then what you should look for in an attorney. And then Do that educational process before you start. If you have the ability to do that, you might have to move quickly depending on the situation. And then seek out good advice from a qualified attorney.
0: Yeah. And then finding that attorney, I think maybe there's, I don't know, I don't want to use the wrong word shame or just maybe a cultural shame around divorce where you might be like, well, I better just ask my neighbor or I better just ask my mom what I should do as opposed to seeking things out in a manner. If you were interested in investing or whatever, so you go to the internet, you'd be like, Hey, what's the best place for me to go and invest? How do people find the right attorney? What's the best way to do that?
1: One of the chapters in my book, I walk through the steps, but in short, there's nothing wrong with some Google research to do, to do some initial homework. So for, first, let's talk about the human element. So certainly talking to friends, family, trusted advisors is a perfectly fine place to start. Maybe you have an accountant. You might have a counselor. And, and I'm a big fan of counselors and mental health professionals and helping with the divorce process. And I urge people to assemble a team to help them, not just a divorce lawyer, but counselor or divorce coach, an accountant. You know, if you don't have one already, a wealth planner. Those folks are not terribly expensive and can save you tremendous money and grief later on and really help you through the process. So assembling that team, maybe you're asking them for referrals. If you're talking to friends and family, make sure it's a recent referral, not somebody they worked with 10 years ago. I mean, that might be a starting point, but that person might not be the best option. Or they had an uncomplicated divorce and it was completely different than yours, and that person was good in that circumstance, might not be great in your situation. So those personal referrals are obviously valuable, but then temper that with doing your own homework, some Google research, Google the person's name, look at their firm website, look at their Google reviews, read them. Don't just look at the stars, look at what people say. They'll tell you, and some people might be skeptical and say, well, they rig the reviews. Well, there are lots and lots, when there's a high volume of reviews, Not everybody's making it up, okay? Most of the reviews are totally legit. You'll get a good feel from reading the reviews what the personality of the law firm is and what people like about the firm and what they don't like about the law firm. So that's very valuable. Avo.com is another source of attorney reviews. AVVO.com is one place where there are lawyer reviews. But really, Google's kind of become the leader. To a lesser extent, there are reviews on Facebook as well for firms. That's valuable. And then going through the firm's materials, what kind of educational materials are they putting out for clients? Do they have a Facebook group? Are they providing resources for people at no charge? Those kind of things. Then also researching the person's license is usually available easily online at no charge. You can search the state bar and look up that lawyer and make sure they haven't been disciplined and also make sure that their license is in force and not suspended or revoked. Some people may be shocked to find out some not so good things about a lawyer that they were contemplating hiring and they may find they've been disciplined for misconduct involving clients and maybe malfeasance related to money. And those are lawyers to steer clear of. So that kind of education can save a tremendous amount of trouble later. And then having a consultation with, I'd suggest at least two or three lawyers to see what a good fit would be for you in your community you can, a lot of them will do by, you know, go remote by Zoom. They'll do consults remotely or in person and meet the people and, and see if you're a good fit. I talk about kind of what to listen for and look for in those consultations and the questions to ask.
0: Depending on who you're working with, fees can vary. What kind of somebody expect to maybe shell out if they want to connect with the right attorney to help them get through the process?
1: So obviously, this varies widely depending on the jurisdiction and the law firm. But in the Chicagoland area, Downtown Chicago is more expensive typically than the suburban area, and then downstate is even less expensive in, in Illinois. But talking about our jurisdiction, lawyers charge anywhere from $250 to $750 an hour depending on the nature of you know, the lawyer you're hiring, the level of experience, the dedication to the practice. So our law firm concentrates in divorce, STG divorce law. That's all we do is divorce and family law. There are a lot of attorneys that do some divorce and they do a lot of other things. And I, I don't recommend... People go with that because unless they have a very, very simple divorce, because you want somebody who concentrates in it and that's their focus. There are so many things that are combined in divorce and constantly changing law that it requires somebody who focuses on the practice. So those folks charge something more because of their experience and their skill level. There are lawyers who charge fixed fees. So they use either one fixed fee or segmented fixed fee for a case, depending on the options the client chooses, those are gaining in popularity. We are starting to offer those. All in, to kind of answer your question about what is a divorce cost beginning to end, so much depends on complexity and the amount of fighting that's going on between the parties. If you have a nice negotiated case, let's say the ordinary number of issues and a couple kids and sort of the typical case. In our experience, that type of case is somewhere between 12500 and maybe 25000 per person. So, maybe twenty to forty or fifty thousand dollars per couple, it doesn't have to be that expensive. If people talk through the issues and they can cooperate and come to the table with a lot of things worked out, that can be dramatically less expensive.
0: We'll be back to the show after a word from our sponsor. each. Isn't that crazy? You heard that right. $25 is their most expensive plan, actually. And Tello is running a special offer for MKM listeners right now. Check out Tello today at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Tello and use the code MKM20 to get 20% off on your first month of service for any Telo plan above that $10 per month mark. Again, use MKM20 to get 20% off at marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo, and you'll be supporting this show. Hurry up, the code is valid until April 19th, 2024. marriagekidsandmoney.com slash Telo. Let's jump back into the show. Let's talk about how to make the process uh, a little easier then and the factors that can help out with that. So talk to me about the divorce process and what is actually happening during that process. And I guess, what ways can we make it a little bit more, I guess, amicable is the right word? I don't know.
1: (laughs) Sure. Starting out with the nature of the process. First, after you retain an attorney, the first step is really, it depends on the situation. If it's a high conflict divorce There's a lot of fighting or acrimony issues with the children. Stabilizing the patient is the term I use. It's like the emergency room. First, you have to stabilize the patient before you can do surgery. So, you know, you might go in on an emergency motion or a temporary relief motion to get support coming, like child support or alimony. Or you might need to, if you're a parent and the other parent is preventing you from seeing the kids, you might need to get a court order to have you be able to see the children. So, if you hopefully you don't have those issues and hopefully you can ask the other lawyer first nicely and get some agreements between the lawyers rather than having to go to use the court but stabilizing that situation and then the next step is people providing discovery information so providing their financial information to the attorneys so they can assemble the financial picture then also talking with them about the situation related to the children so what are the facts related to parenting who's spending time with the kids who's dealing with them with doctors, school, things like that, any disabilities or special needs. These types of things have to be discussed with the attorneys. And after that fact gathering, then there's an exchange of that information between lawyers. Then the negotiations really can begin when both people have an even playing field when they have access to the same information. The term I use is data data set. Once the data set is established, and you and I as the lawyers say, yes, we have faith in the data, now we can start talking turkey because we have confidence in the information.
0: Once the information is gathered and you guys understand what are the playing cards that are on the table, how do they decide who gets what?
1: First, I should say, so much money and time is ground up in discovery. So the process we just talked about that I glossed (laughs) over, (laughs) I think if it's done well and the parties are really cooperating, It can be very efficient. This is a place where people can save money for themselves by getting that stuff in order and getting it to the lawyers early and then often with updates. Being a team player with your lawyer is critical because the the more information you can provide to your attorney and not play games and not hide stuff, the less opportunity you have for expensive litigation around discovery because not providing stuff or missing things it just generates fees because the other lawyer says, Well, I didn't get X and I didn't get Y and you need to give me that stuff. Or they run into court on a motion asking the court to force the turnover of that information. And now we're creating like we're feeding the monster. And now we start into the what I call eye poking in the litigation where it's it's like Molary and Curley starting to smack each other over
0: what should be a routine process. So the less messing around everybody does, the lower the fees are because you're not gathering the hourly rate as much, and you're probably not upsetting the court with a lot of running around, right?
1: Absolutely. It's very simple. that time is money. The, the less the fewer interactions you have with your attorney, the, the more money you're saving, obviously. Now, there is a flip side of that. If you're not communicating with your lawyer important stuff, then you're gonna cost yourself more money in the long run. So the answer there is don't be one of those people that never talks to your lawyer. But there, there is a medium or there's a middle, a reasonable middle ground. So moving to the next step is once the data set is established, then we start negotiating. And the framework around the negotiations, obviously based on your state law and what state law says about division of property, alimony, child support. And most states have a pretty detailed structure with respect to child support and alimony. In most states, those are generally formulas. They're math problems. And the only things we're usually debating are things like, well, how much income does the person really earn? If they have maybe a complex income structure, so they own their own business, they have a lot of business expenses, or they have a highly variable income, that gets a little more challenging to figure out what someone's income actually is. And then we have issues about, well, the recipient spouse, if they're not working, should they be working? What would the equivalent value be of that work? And does that figure into the formula? And that's very much dependent state by state.
0: We've heard those estimates of, I'm thinking of the stay-at-home mom or the stay-at-home dad that's listening, that what they actually would be paid if that was a paying position and all that goes into taking care of the children, getting the home ready, taking them back and forth from sporting events. How does that become, I guess, fair for that person in the process? Oh, you just
1: said the loaded word. (laughs) So, (laughs) Are you looking uh, for the fair fairy? (laughs) <laughs> a colleague of mine, is that what you call it? Because that's great.
0: My son reads a book called, um, so it's a Dogman series, and they have this character called the Fair Fairy. When the kids come in and they're like, hey, that's not fair, I didn't get enough. What if my candy, he got more than me. And the Fair Fairy just kind of like loses it, like it right. doesn't exist.
1: <laughs> well, and that's, so one of my colleagues sort of famously says fair is another four letter F word. And, <laughs> and so he, he always says, my fair is different than your fair. So we have to talk about, and his term is, what's acceptable? And I think that's a better way to frame it. So, because none of it's fair, especially if you're the person who, like, didn't want the divorce, for example, it's totally unfair. To answer your question, which really was, well, how do you compute the number, basically? It, it's really a creature of the state's law and case law. And in Illinois, what, the number I'm talking about for the, the, let's say, the person who's in the home taking care of the children if they're not working in an outside job what they're typically assigning is either a part-time wage or just a minimum wage for somebody who's been out of the workforce for a long time to offset some of the income of the higher wage earner in the math problem that is used to calculate alimony or what we call maintenance. So there's some debate going about that, but that number doesn't have, does not have a giant effect typically on the maintenance paid because of the way the formula works in Illinois. Other states vary.
0: You mentioned earlier about some myths or some mistakes that people might make in the process. You talk about some of these in your book. Could you talk to us about those now that people maybe have uh, some misconceptions about the divorce process that could help them out?
1: One of the biggest myths is that the judge cares about your story, the whys and wherefores of the divorce. You know, he did this to me, she did this to me, whatever, she cheated on me, all that kind of stuff. That to us is very important. I am not discounting it at all. And I tell our new clients and consultations all the time. Don't get me wrong. That stuff is critically important because it's the why. I mean, this stuff is, is part of your life story. It's the why it's why you're here the way that, because our country has moved to no fault divorce fault doesn't come into it anymore. So who did what to whom is completely irrelevant. So it matters to you as the client, it matters to us because we care and, and also knowing the backstory Actually helps us understand where our clients are coming from and where their spouse is coming from, which I think helps us unlock solutions when we're trying to negotiate settlement. Kind of understand where people are coming from. The psychology is important, but the court doesn't care. So there there isn't going to be this dramatic day in court like you see in the movies where you're going to get to tell your story about how bad your spouse is. The judge is going to say, "Wow, I'm really sorry to hear that." You you get all the money and you get the kids, and the other person's banished forever. It doesn't happen like that. A divorce trial is a very boring kind of thing where we generally, where we go through numbers. It's a lot of financial information, credit card statements, mortgage statements, and tax returns. And it's a pretty dry thing that's a little scary and very dull and lengthy. And the client knows they're spending money on these lawyers the whole time, which should be better spent on their kid's college education or or buying a car or something. Trial is not a magic solution. So one of my big things is sort of disposing of the notion that the court will, first of all, that you'll get to tell your story and the judge will listen to it. Number two, that it's a, a perfect computer that will give you the right answer. That you put all the facts into the court computer and the judge will spit out the perfect solution. Well, the judge is human and the judge has a very limited amount of time to listen to you, through your lawyer, by the way, which is a very inefficient way to communicate. Rules of evidence apply. Not everything in your story gets to the judge's ears. They don't remember everything either. And what you think is important isn't necessarily what the law says is important. And the judge may come up with a solution that's really not good for you. Or it doesn't meet all your needs or your children's needs. They don't know you. They're going to put you in a box because they have to, because that's human nature and you're going to get classified along with other folks because that's how people process information when they have limited time.
0: So somebody was listening and they heard you say, if my spouse cheats on me, I don't get more. Explain that. How is that possible? Tell us about this no-fault divorce a little bit more.
1: Great question because it comes up all the time. In our state, we've completely abolished all forms of fault. We used to have a hybrid. We had a, You could plead no-fault, so you could say irreconcilable differences. We can't get along anymore. Or you could plead that there was a reason for the divorce. It was like actually chronic alcoholism. It was actually called chronic drunkenness, adultery, actually impotency. If the person couldn't bear children, you could get divorced. And there were like five reasons. And those were eliminated by our statute. Our legislature eliminated those, I want to say, in 2015. And most states are trending in that direction if they haven't gotten there already. Not only are they allowing no fault – they're eliminating any of the fault reasons because they found that all it does is kind of gin up acrimony and it doesn't net net yield better results in these cases. Yeah. The answer is no matter how bad the affair was, no matter what, how bad that other person was or even abusive, that's not going to affect the financial outcome in the case with one caveat. If the other person has spent money on an extramarital affair and you can show the evidence of that, the marriage can recoup those funds. So it needs to be substantial, and there are time constraints in Illinois about how far back you can go to try to capture the lost dollars.
0: That makes a lot of sense, and I guess by eliminating all these other factors that could be the reason for the divorce, that probably saves the court time, the lawyer time, the, the individual's time. Is that right?
1: The legislatures have all been trending towards access to justice, making divorces more efficient, making them easier for people who have lower incomes, that all of those political forces have driven dramatic changes in divorce law. So, for example, in Illinois, we had no formula for alimony until 2015. It was a series of factors the court would consider, which left a lot of room for lawyers to battle over what should happen. And that various courts had various rules of thumb that sort of differed from judge to judge and court to court across the state, which is really rough For lawyers trying to get a handle on trying to predict an outcome which also helps you figure out what you want to do for settlement well if everybody's doing different things it's hard to get a handle on that which makes it difficult to settle a case so eventually statute said or change in the statute was here's a formula this applies to everybody with and then there's an exception for unusual
0: circumstances
1: but in the vast majority of cases the formula is applied
0: I feel like that makes sense. Of course, when you hear it initially, you're like, wait a second, that doesn't seem fair. Well, I said the word again. I said the F word again. (laughs) 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 But no, I understand. Hey, so let's talk about, I have one question for you. So you've been a part of this process for quite a while. When all is said and done, and you've been a part of some of these, when would you have walked away, Rafe, and just said that was a successful divorce?
1: When the people feel like they've been listened to and that their needs have been met with the outcome, the happiest clients are the ones that settle their cases. You know, I mean 98% of divorce cases settle nationally, whether it's a month after it gets filed or even before filing or at the day of trial, 98% of divorce cases settle. Michael with my book is to move those folks to settle sooner with a lot less grief because they're going to settle eventually. So if if I can help accelerate that process and save people time and money and aggravation, then then I've done a good thing. And also I'm very motivated to recommend alternative dispute resolution to people because I'm a big fan when people feel that they're in control of the process. So for in collaborative practice, which I'm a big fan of mediation, the parties are really driving the process. The people getting divorced have say so, and they are driving the result. So they're getting a custom result in their settlement agreement, both for their children and for themselves that they came up with. If you go to court and the court decides you're putting your fate in the hands of the judge. It might be a good result, might not be such a good result, but it won't be nearly as custom and you won't feel it in control like you did when you negotiated a settlement. So when the people feel like they got a result that was acceptable and met their needs, it's going to be imperfect. No no result is perfect. But if it's close and they feel it's acceptable, then that's a good, that's a great outcome.
0: And Rafe, at the beginning of the conversation, you and I talked about a little bit of sort of the shame around divorce. But ultimately, a lot of people could become happier after divorce. I mean, tell us about that side of things.
1: Well, if, you know, there, there is a good reason why people are, there are good reasons why people are getting divorced. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the moral or religious aspects. But if people simply aren't getting along and they've made efforts to get along, and, you know, it's, it's critical, by the way, to get counseling, make every effort to stay married. I'm, my number one piece of advice about divorce is don't get one. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the cheapest way to, to get divorced is to not get divorced. So stay married, enjoy your wife or your husband and figure out a way to, to stick together. But if you can't, and eventually people make smart people. My ex-wife and I, she's really sharp and we're very educated, professional people we worked at it. We couldn't make it work. And we had a very amicable parting. Was it wonderful? No, no divorce is. You know, would I have preferred to stay married if we could have worked it out? Absolutely. 100 percent. I'm the first person in my family to get divorced and I'm not proud of it. You know, I, I thought for years that I was immune to it and oh, I'm, I'm better than that. And, you know, we're smarter than that. We're perfect people. We were both the oldest kid in our families, both type A go getters. We have very handsome boys and we were successful. We're blessed with, we worked hard. We had the, you know, 2.1 kids and all that stuff. And it didn't work out eventually, but we still respect each other. We get along well and our kids are good. It took time, but the kids are doing really well. So, but the answer is yes. I mean, I can tell you the grass is greener on the right circumstances. And especially if you've done your homework and you made every effort to stay married because I think it's important to do that, both for your own your own sake, to look in the mirror and say, I made every effort, because it's too important. And also for your kids, because you want to be able to look at them and say, hey, I really tried. I put in a good effort here, or, or be able to feel that way, because eventually they'll ask you. But yeah, it's there are actually some good books on that. I, I don't recall the title of one, but there's a book kind of explaining the positive things About a divorce as well. And there's so many books about the negatives, obviously, and there are very few about the positives. I have yet to see somebody at the divorce court when they got their judgment entered. People are usually at least relieved, if not downright happy that it's done and they're moving on to the next chapter. They may not be feeling that way in the beginning, especially if they're the person that sort of didn't want the divorce or wasn't the first one. But by the end of the process, most people have come to acceptance They realize, if this person doesn't love me, I really don't want to be with them either. And that's something that I've talked to counselors about and also to our clients when they come into a consultation. If they're the person who feels like they've been rejected, usually one person has come to the realization that the marriage is over before the other, and they've wrestled through that emotional stuff, sometimes for a very long time, and they've already gone through the stages of grief. And I talk about the bridge people come across in the book. And some people are much farther across than the other. That's very common. Eventually, the other person realizes, you know, I shouldn't be with somebody who doesn't want me, and I deserve better, too. And then, yeah, it's better, ultimately. And people generally find a better situation on the other side. And and I've had people call us later and say, tell us how they're doing and stuff. And sometimes the results are like startlingly good. People get in toxic relationships and aren't healthy or abusive stuff, well, those are, those are no-brainers. People do tremendously better when they get out from under that.
0: Well, you talked about one of our first steps for folks is educating yourself, and you've put out a great book that's doing that. Tell people where they can get the book and maybe how they can connect with you.
1: My book, I Just Want This Done, How Smart, Successful People Get Divorced Without Losing Their Kids, Money, and Minds, is on Amazon. It's also available on uh, at Barnes & Noble. And it's also at any ebook retailer because the digital version is available everywhere. So Kindle and Nook and Apple Books. The audiobook just came out, it's on Audible. So real easy to search. I just want this done. Also, if you search just my name, Rayford Palmer, you'll find it. The book website is I Just Want This Done.com. And I'm all over social media. I'm on Twitter at Rayford Palmer. I'm on TikTok at Rayford Palmer. I have 15,000 followers and growing, giving divorce advice, listening to the, the followers, answering questions. I really enjoy the community.
0: Rafe, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. And everybody, yeah, if you need this resource, you mentioned the great places to get it. I'm also going to have it in the show notes of the show if you want to click there too. Raford, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Andy. Really appreciate the opportunity. Have a great day. Thank you.
0: Rayford, his number one piece of advice about divorce is not to get one. (laughs) But if you're going to, there are some ways to make the process easier. Here are my top three takeaways from my conversation with Rayford Palmer. Number one, three bid the lawyer process. To keep costs in line, and to make sure you're working with someone you really trust, three-bid your divorce lawyer. Meet with or interview three different lawyers and make sure you're happy before moving forward. Given the time and intensity of this process, you'll want to make sure you are financially and emotionally prepared to work with this person for an extended period of time. Number two, get organized and be honest. Time is money when it comes to the divorce process, evidently. The longer you delay, the more hours are billed. If you don't share all the pertinent information with your lawyer or the judge, time just drags on. So be honest, be organized, and be present in the divorce process. Number three, divorce isn't the end, it's a new beginning. While getting a divorce can be incredibly sad, for some, can be incredibly relieving as well. Rayford shared his story with us when we were talking on the podcast. It was a difficult divorce for him that he went through, but now he's a happily married man and he has a good relationship with his ex-wife. So if you're in the thick of it, know that things can and will get better soon. And those are my top three takeaways, everybody. I would love to hear from you on what yours were. Hit me up on social media at Andy Hill MKM and let's keep the conversation going. As a quick reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only, my friends. Be sure to seek out a professional for your specific situation. A big thanks to Dan Tabitt for putting together today's show on audio. We are Digital Marketing for supporting us on Instagram. And Dan Hines for helping us with our YouTube videos. And of course, Mandy Burt for her stellar writing on our site. This content, everybody, uh, yeah, it takes a little village to bring it all together. So thank you all for helping. Hey, if you want to create some more connections with like-minded people who are on a mission to improve their families' finances, well, you should be joining us in the Thriving Families Facebook group, everybody. This is a free Facebook group focused on helping young families thrive. And one thing that we like to do in this group is just share our collective thoughts and opinions on important family finance discussions. So I threw out a question last week, and here it is. What is one piece of financial advice you'd go back and give yourself at the start of your marriage? And group member Jelena had this insight to share. My advice would be to try to understand their point of view, ask their why, and recognize that you both bring different perspectives and experiences about money into your marriage. Adjusting this small thing helped us prioritize our budget better. Jelena's comment, this is a fantastic one, and it really resonated with our group, and honestly, it's a great tie-in for today's chat with Rayford. Having conversations about your why at the beginning would have been really smart for a lot of us, obviously, even Nicole and I, but having that conversation now is perfectly fine too. Where are we headed as a couple? Is that where you want to go? What lights you up inside? What changes can we make together so we can have more days that make us smile? These questions, these conversations could not only save a marriage, but it could take it in a brand new direction that you're both thrilled about. Can I get a round of applause for our friend Jelena for helping us think a bit deeper about our why and our marriage goals today? All right. (laughs) Thank you, Jelena. Thank you very much for starting this conversation and keeping it going. If you want to join our free Thriving Families Facebook community, please go to marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. That's marriagekidsandmoney.com slash community. Again, it's a free Facebook group. You can hang out with us there. If you're not into Facebook, you can check me out on social media at Andy AndyHillMKM. And I would love to uh, hang out with you. In the spirit of growth and inspiration, I'm going to end the show with a quote today from unknown. There will be many chapters in your life. Don't get lost in the one you're in now. Here's to a brighter future, my friends. Carpe diem.